Greetings. Welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your affectionate host, Robert J. Marks. Today, we're going to discuss opioid addiction. Opioids include Oxycontin, Percodin, and Fentanyl. Uh, All are highly addictive, and all have been responsible for numerous deaths. Uh, They also have useful medical applications. So opioids like fentanyl are not themselves good or bad. It's like most everything, it's how it's used. Before we speak to our guest, here's a little bit of background about the brain chemistry of addiction from the perspective of uh, neuroscience. In the 1960s, neurosurgeon Benjamin Leibett noticed there was a signal in the brain that occurred before you knew you were going to do something. In other words, if you had a sudden impulse to call your mom, there would be a signal in your brain prior to your impulse to call your mother that would say, call your mother, and then it would then it would tell you that you were supposed to call your mother. On the surface, it looks like you don't have free will. Your brain generates signals about what you were to do before you knew you wanted to do it. But Leibniz noticed that humans do have the ability to say no to these impulses. We don't have to do what the brain signals tell us to do. Leibniz called this free won't, not free will, but free won't, saying no to these impulses that came from the brain. There is some controversy about Leibniz's experiment, but one thing is certain. Anyone who is recovering from an addiction practices free won't. I remember when I was quitting smoking, my wife Monica kept telling me we were not going to have any kids as long as I smoked, and I wanted to have kids. So as I was quitting smoking, my brain kept telling me, smoke a cigarette. Go ahead, Bob. You really want a cigarette. And I had to exercise a lot of free won't in quitting my addiction to tobacco. After a bunch of attempts, I finally quit. And when you quit an addiction, your brain rewires itself away from the addiction. But that path is always there, ready to be rebuilt. Recovering alcoholics are told they must not even take a sip of booze if they want to stay uh, on the wagon. And ex-smokers reinforce their commitment with the mantra, which I was taught, I am a puff away from a pack a day. So I wasn't even to touch a cigarette. I am a puff away from a pack a day. Now, opioids are highly addictive. Oxycontin is a opioid. Percodan is an opioid. Uh, fentanyl off the street is an opioid that is killing people, but also has some useful medical uses. Uh, to talk about addictions, we're really privileged to have as our guest today, Richard Hurley. Uh, Dr. Hurley is a medical doctor who is board certified in anesthesiology and pain medicine. Dr. Hurley, welcome. Thank you very much, Robert. Let me let me start off a little bit off topic. You are board certified. We hear this term a lot. What does it mean to be board certified? Who's the board? What is their authority in certifying you? And what hoops do you have to jump through to be board certified? Well, there are several boards that you know, but I chose anesthesia because my initial training was in anesthesia. So I'm boarded in anesthesia and pain medicine through the American Board of Anesthesiology. So this is a national board, is that right? That's correct. And it's been, it's been available for more than 75 years. Oh, I see. Is this put together by the AMA or a government agency? Or uh, they're, they're, the boards are. Uh, it is. It is put together, but it's not put together by the AMA. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like a federal sort of thing. That's correct. You, you were sharing with me that you have to stay up on things, and that you have to take a what is it a test every few months? That's correct. Uh, 
uh, it's called maintenance of certification, and it's called MOCA. And uh, many of the subspecialties in anesthesia uh, are required to, to uh, participate in this on an annual basis. And by the way, you're privileged to pay, spend $210 a year for the uh, excitement of taking this exam every three months. <laughs> okay. uh, it's, it's done online and you get instant feedback. And I actually initially was against it, but uh, I'm not now. It's just, uh, it's one way to study. It's another thing to keep up. It's also another way to realize that maybe you ought to be uh, reading current articles in certain areas that you are, you're not familiar with. And so there are also quality things that you have to do. You have to take, uh, you have to go to CME and, and take uh, things on safety and also on quality improvement. improvement. My goodness. You know, if I was taking an, on, I shouldn't say if I, if somebody who was dishonest was taking a online test, I would open two computers and I would have my second computer ready to Google a question to get the answer. Well, that's, that's why. Uh, could you do that in 60 seconds? Because that's all the time you have. <laughs> oh, is that what they do? They give you 60 seconds to do it. You give it, you get a question, you have uh, four answers and you must answer that within uh, 60 seconds. And if you don't, you get cut off and you get a, you get a zero. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, I've, that's happened to me several times. Oh, you, you've been cut off with the, third, with the, with the 60 seconds? Yeah, okay. but you just get cut off for that one question. You don't get, not for the whole exam. I see. I see. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's interesting. So I know now what board certified means. And you have to pass these tests every, every few months in order to stay board certified, right? That's correct. Okay. Wow. Okay. So that makes me feel better about going to board certified uh, physicians. I know that they've been tested to make sure that they're up to date. Okay. Let's, let's get back to the, to the topic that we wanted to talk about, and that is opioids. And I know you use opioids in your practice. Why, why are opioids so addictive? So there are very few drugs that can actually give you a sense of euphoria or pleasure but the compound and the molecular structure of the opioids stimulates certain areas of the brain. Now, you, the, the receptor that, that really does this is the mu receptor. There are other receptors that are also involved, but the mu receptor, and those receptors are throughout the brain. Okay, can we, ba can we back up a second? What, what sure. is a receptor in the brain? What, what does okay. that mean? So these are little tiny uh, receptors, little, uh, almost like a key in a, in a lock. And the molecule itself gets in there. It stimulates this little receptor. Uh, and uh, there are little G proteins that are then stimulated and they all go on to stimulate the, uh, the receptor, then the nerve. And then th those nerves actually go, um, if it's in the brain, uh, it, they'll stimulate the uh, lateral hypothalamus, the, uh, the tegmental area in the midbrain. And then it'll go to stimulate the areas of the acubens, which are actually basal ganglia. And all of these parts of the brain are heavily uh, modified by dopamine. And dopamine seems to be the pleasure one. There's also a release of endorphins, which are endogenous uh, morphine-like uh, uh, compounds in the brain. And the two of them together in high, do high amounts will produce euphoria. And then what's really interesting, this pleasure sensation that you get is then transmitted to the uh, prefrontal cortex, which makes you remember it all, okay? So hence the reason why that memory is never erased, and that's why you, one puff is one pack, 
Uh, I remember Mark Twain said quitting smoking was the easiest thing he'd ever done. He did it a thousand times. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Yep. I did it. I did it a thousand times too. Yep. So um, I have talked to some people, in fact, a very, very uh, close friend who was addicted to fentanyl. And it was it started with with medical procedures, and I guess the fentanyl comes in little lollipops and stuff like that. And he confided in me that he never took the opioids to get that high; that he just took the opioids so he could feel normal. So this feeling of euphoria comes maybe the first few times when you take this, and then all of a sudden your body your body craves it, and just to feel normal, he had to take his fentanyl. That is very true. And we see that also in prescription drugs where I just don't feel normal unless I take it. But uh, in prescription medications, especially short acting, what they do is they go through a sense of withdrawal every four to six hours as the drug wears off. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. I also have been, um, I'm familiar with the Johnny Depp trial. And he says that he um, he went through a detox sort of situation, and it was the most miserable thing he had ever experienced in his life. My friend has done this also, and he's had kidney stones, which really hurt. He says, "Yeah, it was worth it. Worse than kidney stones is going through the the detoxing and getting that uh, that addiction out of his body." We hear about the street drug fentanyl, which is an opioid, killing so many people. Uh, what's happening here? It's interesting. It's a synthetic. It has uh, the molecular formula of fentanyl is very similar to uh, heroin. It's a unique analgesic, and that is it's extremely powerful. Given IV, it is 100 times uh, stronger than morphine and 50 times stronger than heroin. The problem with the drug is you get an intense high, no question about it, euphoric state, it, uh, that euphoria, though, like you mentioned, as you continue to use it, is not the same. But the therapeutic window of this drug is critical. In other words, if I give you an overdose of heroin or morphine, we've got about an hour to give you naloxone or Narcan to, to reverse that. It's an antidote. And then all of a sudden, you'll start breathing again. With fentanyl, you can stop. If you don't get to the patient with IV fentanyl within minutes, they'll be dead. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, I was reading um, about the street fentanyl that's available in the Authority for All Facts, People Magazine. <laughs> this was from the uh, April 18th, 2022 edition. They had a paper in there. They had the faces of fentanyl, and they had pictures, like 100 pictures of different people that have been killed through fentanyl. And I guess it's a big problem in the U.S. They said drug overdose deaths were up by nearly 30% last year. Right. And in Milwaukee County, they say there has been um, a 234% increase in drug-related deaths in the past 10 years. And it's cheap to make and up to, a, like you mentioned, was 100 times stronger than morphine. Um, the DEA has absconded 9.6 million of these pills in 2021. Wow. And 73% of the Drug-related deaths in the United States, 73% are due to fentanyl. And that, that is astonishing. Uh, and then they say it's two, two, I think it's two milligrams is the amount of fentanyl that can kill an adult. Is that 200 micrograms or two-tenths of a milligram is enough to kill anybody. Wow. That's, that's a very small amount. Now, 
You understand when I was first uh, using the uh, fentanyl was when I was an anesthesiologist. So yeah, you use you use fentanyl in your practice, right? If you could see how much fentanyl I would give a patient who had open heart surgery, it would scare you to death. But as long as I take over their pulmonary aspects, in other words, as long as I give the intubate the patient, put them on a ventilator, keep their carbon dioxide levels 40 or less, I can give you, I used to give um, six to 12 ampules and each ampule has uh, 250 micrograms. An ampule, it's a little glass sample and we would pop it and then we would aspirate that out into a syringe and inject it IV. And prior to a thoracotomy, I would have given a patient six ampules. Now, you would, if, I, if you were on the table and I was giving you two cc's or 100 micrograms, you'd quit breathing within, oh, 45 to 60 seconds. Wow. Okay, so that's not a problem with me because I'm going to breathe for you. You know what I mean? Oh, you you, you have instrumentation there. That, right, right. In other words, I'll put an endotracheal tube in there. I'll hook you up to a ventilator. Uh, I'll set the ventilator dose based on your tidal volumes and how often you breathe. I'll, me I'll, I'll make sure your oxygen levels and CO2 levels are normal. And we, then we do the operation and you have no pain at all. In other words, they crack your chest and your heart rate and blood pressure doesn't change a bit. Wow. Okay. So, so it's a very powerful drug, but it's certainly, its utilization in anesthesia is, is just fantastic. Now, now, the obvious question, if you use the fentanyl in the anesthesia, do the patients have any withdrawal after they come out of their uh, operation? It's really a, uh, that's a, a great, great question. And, what, and the reason I say that is because the dr drug has a half-life of 30 minutes to an hour. That's all. I mean, it's gone. Uh, it is so rapidly metabolized and excreted primarily through the urine uh, so that uh, you, you'll have to actually give them uh, postoperatively uh, some pain medicine, uh, either fentanyl, whatever. Uh, and the fentanyl can be given either in, uh, in a bolus or you can uh, head, set it up in a pump and it'll deliver so many micrograms per hour. I see. So even the people that take this drug recreationally only have a short period of being high. Is that right? That's right. It, it, uh, IV, it's the half-life's about 30 to, uh, 30 to 60 minutes. Intramuscularly might last a little bit longer, but not much more than that. That's about it. Isn't that interesting? I, I watched the, um, there was a series called Dope Sick. It was on, I believe, the Hulu channel streaming, and it's still available if people want to watch it. It was a Hulu special production. Uh, Michael Keaton starred as a physician that got hooked on OxyContin, and it it went through the addiction that spread through Appalachian, Southern Ohio a decade or so ago. And, um, you know, the OxyContin, it comes in pills. Fentanyl comes in lollipops. Has there been, been any pushback from the medical community about the prescription of these, these drugs? Um, can any physician write a prescription for OxyContin or fentanyl? Okay, so... If you write a prescription for OxyContin, you may be familiar with uh, the CDC guidelines for opioid prescription writing. No, no, I'm not. No, what Okay, other? so in 2016, the CDC came out with um, 12 uh, guidelines in terms of for primary care physicians and, and what they should write. And, what, and let me just go through those real quickly so you'll understand what happened. It is any physician can write a prescription for fentanyl. But by the way, that's usually done in a patch. 
Okay. Now you could write it in most of the orals, the buckles and the sublinguals and the sublingual sprays are predominantly for cancer pain. Okay. Breakthrough cancer pain. But uh, anybody can write that as long as they have a license to practice like in Texas and also have a license through the DEA. But, but those are, are those for people who are terminally ill and you're just trying to make them comfortable until death comes? The only patients that I use, the suckers, the uh, sublinguals, are for patients primarily who have head and neck cancer. And uh, they're highly, you know, they're not opioid naive at all, okay? And the only way you could control their pain was, uh, for me and this particular patient, was the orals. Now, most patients who get fentanyl, like when we prescribe it, it's called uh, a fentanyl patch, or their trade name was duragesic. And they come in... In a, in a patch that looks like a Band-Aid, and the Band-Aid is designed to deliver the drug through the skin into the, central, uh, into the circulation and then into the central nervous system. And, it, and uh, they're labeled at 12 and a half micrograms per hour, 25 micrograms per hour, 50, 75, and so on. And, and that drug is so lipophilic, it penetrates the skin, fat, and gets into the circulation quickly. It, but it does take 11 hours to penetrate to get through. But once it's through, it's fine. And these patches, you, you, you change them every three days. I see. So they're kind of slow release in a way. Right. That's correct. But people who abuse it will then take the patch and uh, scrape it off and take the, 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 the drug. If you look at it, if you scrape it off, it looks like a little gel. And they'll put that under their tongue, the whole amount. Yes. A, whole, a three day supply out of there. That's how you. And, and, and what, one of the things about this was that we used to see this, that that drug was used a lot by nursing homes because the nurses would only have to give their pain medicines every three days. They didn't have to run in every two hours. And then they would take those patches off. They'd throw them into the dumpster and people would die in the dumpster to get those. Oh, yeah. And, they, and by the way, the, the name of them was they were called chiclets. 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 Yeah, that's a chiclet. And by the way, that's been on a. I've been on a sweaty arm for three days, and now you're going to put it in your mouth? Oh, my gosh. You must really be hard up if you're going to put a, a sweaty thing in your mouth. You really are. Oh, yeah, gosh. so the, the, the 12 guidelines, let me do this real quick. The, yeah, the opio yeah, let's go opioids are not, not the first line anymore. You've got to try over-the-counters. You've got to try exercise. You've got to try uh, interventional uh, cognitive behavioral therapies. Uh, if you do decide to do them, you have to establish a, a realistic goals for pain and for function. You have to discuss the risk and benefits. The, you must start out with short-acting pain medicines, not long-acting like OxyContin. You got to use the lowest effective dose, and they really want it under 15 morphine uh, milliequivalents, and I can explain that later on, or, and certainly not to exceed 90. Uh, you, if you're going to treat acute pain, you can only treat it for three to 10 days, uh, 10 days now in, in Texas. You can evaluate the benefits and harms frequently. So initially, when I put them on there, you need to see them every one to two to four weeks. Uh, then you got to do mitigating strategies. You got to give them naloxone if they're going to get more than 50 morphine equivalents. You can't let them take benzos, benzodiazepines at the same time, and they can't drink alcohol. Then you've got to re uh, review the prescription drug uh, uh, information, and that's uh, put out by the state now. And so I can look at, I can pull up the patient's name and see if somebody else is prescribing them uh, other medications. I have to do urine drug testing to see if they, uh, if they have illegal medications or alcohol in their urine. I have to, uh, you, ha you kind of avoid the use of opioids with benzos and with alcohol. What, what, are, what are benzos? Our benzos are, our benzodiazepines would be like Valium, Ativan, Lorazepam, uh, Ambien, uh, and then 
you've got to be you've got to have a way to uh, offer medication assisted treatment either using suboxone or possibly methadone or uh, cognitive behavioral therapy so all of these things came out in 2016 okay and that you know the opioid problems in the Appalachian in 2000 their death rate was the same as the general population it was, just, it was amazing. I mean, they didn't have they didn't have a big issue with it. Okay, but by 2017, the death rate in the overdose death rate in the Appalachian was 72 percent higher than the general population. Wow! And one of the things they figured out was, interestingly enough, the prescription uh, writing was 45 percent higher than the general population. Wow! Yeah. So there was a lot of abuse. Uh, going on. Uh, and some of that was due to marketing of, of Oxycontin and those kinds of things. Yeah, that's what that's what the Dope Sick uh, series was talking about, was the company kept on coming out with pills with higher and higher dosage. Right. And they, they kept saying that if you had this, this slow release of the opioid over time, it wasn't addictive, which turned out to just be company hype. It, uh, it didn't work. My friend who was addicted to opioid, I think probably... This happened before all of these restrictions came in. Uh, in other words, he was given fentanyl whenever he said, "Ooh, I feel uncomfortable," and it was just—it was just an overdose. He became addicted totally from prescriptions. Sure. And he wanted to—he wanted to, and he was tempted to go to the street, but decided not to, and uh, suffered the consequences of of doing that. I also—I also read today as a warning. This is People Magazine. And, it's, and this is from the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. It says, many fake pills made with fentanyl look like prescription drugs. And as many as, and this is what blew my mind, two in five counterfeit pills may contain a fatal dose of fentanyl. Two in five, according to according to the source. And I tell you, that's really scary. And I, I, I understand on the street, they also begin to do things like cut cocaine with some fentanyl. And so even though you don't buy the, this fentanyl and you buy some sort of other drugs, there's a good chance that it's, it's cut with fentanyl in order to give it a bigger hit. So this is, yeah, this is, this is really serious, but it sounds like from the medical side that things are pretty well, um, pretty, pretty well tuned to right now. And they seem to be working pretty well. Have the statistics, have the statistics gone down after the imposition of these criteria? Before the, the guidelines came out, prescription opioid writing was actually going down. Now, it has dropped precipitously since 2016, but have the overdose deaths gone up? The answer to that is yes. Over 100,000 last year, and 72% of those are fentanyl-based. So what has happened is, is that those guidelines, if the CDC uh, came out with a guideline for you at Baylor University, how long would you think it would take because, before that became the standard of care? <laughs> so that's exactly, and so not only did it become the standard of care among physicians, uh, it also led to legislation about, about the states that they started to adopt. Uh, they made those, those recommendations into law. Okay. So, so the biggest problem we had then is that if I had a patient that needed more than 50 milligrams of morphine a day, and I told them now I can't order it because of the recommendation of the CDC guidelines, where do you think they went? Straight to the street. Did they? So now, yeah. So what has have what you actually, had, have you had incidents of that? Where you absolutely. Had well, yeah. Well, incidents, and you see them, you read them in the obituary. Okay. <laughs> oh. 
gosh, that's terrible. That's actually what has actually happened is that when, when we started cutting them back and they, uh, they couldn't get the medication and fentanyl was so easy to get, that, that was it. And you know, we're really something, if, you're, if you are truly, if your thoughts of addiction and uh, substance abuse disorder are so strong, I, I can't believe this, but actually the addict will actually go uh, try to get the drug that killed the most people. Now that thinking is just, what? yeah. In other words, uh, I, I like what I've got, but if that, if that dose killed that person, I bet you if I took just a little bit less than that, that would be the best high I'd ever have. Oh my gosh. Isn't that something? Oh my gosh. That's, I tell you, addiction and, um, and the wiring of the brain to these dopamine hits is really dangerous. You mentioned that I was going to ask if you had any advice for the addicted. I, you mentioned kind of exercise, which I think is interesting. What, what happens when you exercise? How does that help you? Physical therapy uh, uh, is um, what I always tell my patients. If you actually do something function-wise, uh, walk a block, walk a flight of stairs, um, walk a mile, Achieving a physical goal is actually pain relieving. And you may have noticed that yourself, okay? I couldn't do 10 push-ups and now I can do 11. Or I, in other words, if, if you set physical uh, goals to patients and they actually do them, uh, it actually is pain, rela pain relieving. If you set a goal like uh, I'm gonna lose 10 pounds in the next three months, setting goals and actually accomplish them uh, actually increase, creates, uh, again, the same kind of pleasure sensation. Now, granted, it's not as powerful as the opioids, but those things are definitely helpful. That's interesting. I have a, I have a friend, in fact, I'll even mention his name. He's Winston Ewart. He was one of my students who started to pack on some pounds, and I saw him, if, I don't know, a year later, and he was skinny. And I said, what happened? He says, I found out that if I charted my weight every day and the weight went down, I have this sense of pleasure. I don't know if he got a dopamine hit, but whatever, but I think that nerds like like Winston and me are really interested in graphs and things like that. So he put he put down a little point and he said, that made me feel so good. I wanted to feel that good the next day. So that that was that was another example of what happened. You also met a guy cognitive uh, cognitive therapy. Right. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. Um, do, would, does this include like groups like uh, AA and um, that, that, are, that are similar to AA? Certainly. Uh, you could certainly say that's a part of the group. Uh, uh, but basically, they, they, what, what they try to do is they try to uh, uh, change or the, your thought processes in terms of a situation. Okay. So you may have a situation. But is that situation causing your emotional change or is it the interpretation of that that is OK? So they they help you to deal with your thought processes as you deal with whatever it is that the issue is, whether it's addiction or, or whatever. OK, it changes the thoughts and feelings. I mean, I have patients that come into my office and I ask them, well, tell me about your pain. And they'll say, well, my back pain, I feel like somebody is cutting me in two with a knife. Oh. Okay. So that, we call that, obviously, they may have had back surgery, but they weren't cut in two. If they were awake, how would they know that? In other words, many patients dr dr 
make it dramatic or catastrophize their pain beyond, doctor, you don't understand what I'm going through. And yet 65% of all patients who are over 65 have at least three to four weeks of uh, crippling back pain every year. Okay. Wait, say that again. Three, uh, yeah, 65, 65% of all uh, Americans after the age of 65 will have at least three weeks of significant lower back pain. A year? A year, every year. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those, those numbers are well done. So, but, so what they try to do is to help them to, deter, if a situation occurs and that's actually, you think this is what's causing it, we're going to interpret that differently. We're going to develop constructive techniques. And one of the things that they do is get you to write it down like this guy did. Okay. So, so that you can modify your dysfunctional, dysfunctional thinking. Um, and you can modify these automatic thoughts like Libet was getting, getting into that you mentioned at the beginning of the talk. The free won't. Yes. Right. Yeah. I remember I used to be afraid of needles. I would, I would hate to go in and uh, give blood because I was just afraid of needles. Uh, I, my, my son is really afraid of needles and I've talked a lot to these, what do they call them? Phlebotomist? Is that the person that take, takes the blood? Uh, I've talked to them and, um, I ask who is most afraid of the needles going into the arm. And two of about the five phlebotomists that I've talked to said it's these big burly guys with tattoos trying to announce to the world they're big tough guys, <laughs> which which I thought was a very interesting, uh, very interesting observation. Anyway, I used to be afraid of needles. And then one day, and I think this this touches on what you were talking about, one day I decided, look, it doesn't hurt that much. I'm more afraid of the needles than I am the pain. So I started to actually look at my arm when the needle went in, and it wasn't that bad. It was just this this change in perspective that took away that fear. And I think that's what you're talking about with these uh, with, with this cognitive uh, intervention that you're talking about. And, and I, I explain this to my patients in this way. If I came into the room, didn't introduce myself to you, and I slapped you in your face. Your response might be one of horror and you might leave, or you might slap me back. <laughs> yes. But if but if I came into the room with a suitcase and I opened it up and it was full of $100 bills, and I said, this is yours, tax-free, and then I slapped you, your response would be totally different. You might, you might say, why'd you do that? But you wouldn't walk out. And you probably, at the end of the visit, you'd say thank you for the million dollars, you know? Uh-huh. So it's the state of mind in which this happens that creates the emotional response that's uh, like you had. You didn't have the emotional response to the needle. You just, you, you, you set your thought processes that way. I don't have any problem with needles. I, my, plan, my problem is flying on an airplane. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. And all of the problems, it starts from the time I start packing in the morning to the time I get to the terminal, to the time I check in, to the time I go through my bags to take shoes off. By the time I get there, I'm a basket case. And the way I get through it is watch an action movie on my phone. <laughs> is that right? Okay. You know, Emo Phillips, uh, he tells a joke about um, him being despondent and kind of depressed. And he, he went to a therapist to get cheered up. And the therapist charged him $100 per hour. And then he realized that if he was walking down the street and he found a hundred dollar bill, that that would really cheer him up. So, <laughs> so he decided not to not to go to his therapist anymore. That saving that hundred dollars was uh, was going to be good enough for him. 
Dr. Hurley, any last uh, thoughts? Well, the um, I think we, we've covered a lot of different topic, topics on that, but the opioid uh, issues are still there. Uh, and I think for what I, I tell my patients is, you have to make up your mind what you're going to do at the very end. And the problem with opioid addiction is, is it starts at such an early age when we're young and we're young teenagers and stuff. We really don't have those firm grasps of the problems. And, and, and so and we want to experiment. And the peer pressure, as you know, is just terrible. And we think we're we think we're immortal when we're young. Right. And, you know, and parents are nervous about talking to their young children about sex. And they're just as, for, but some, for some reason, they're nervous about talking about drugs. And uh, they, they, a, a, a teenager's got to have, they've got to just say no, like Nancy Reagan said. They got to have that just imprinted in their brain from day one. Otherwise, uh, this, this is, it's a sad situation. And it's bringing our, our uh, death rates down. Uh, you know, we used to have one of the, we, we used to live uh, to be 82 years old. It's dropping every year because of opioid deaths, you know. Really, and that's the prime—the prime reason that the death age is. Yeah, if you're supposed to live to be 82 and you overdose at age 15, what do you think that does to the? Oh, that, to that the really average? screws up the average. Yeah, Absolutely, it it's massive changes. Yeah. Well, this People magazine said that almost all of the opioid deaths from fentanyl were from young kids. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the pictures here: 25, 35, 20, 32 age 19, uh, 20. So these are all kids that think they're immortal and just want to experience part of life. And like you said, it's probably do a lot to peer pressure too. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank, thank you, Richard. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Richard Hurley. Uh, Dr. Hurley is a MD who is board certified in anesthesiology and pain medicine. And we're going to continue with another podcast with Dr. Hurley on a, on a different topic. And until then, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.